Let's pray. Father, we give thanks that we can open your word this morning. We give thanks for the messages and the teaching that we've been hearing from the book of Isaiah. We thank you, Father, for uh, the great promises that have been taught to us. We give thanks for uh, what we can look forward to. Father, we give thanks for um, the great power that you have shown us that you can do all things. Father, help us to open our hearts to your word this morning. Help us to listen uh, to your message to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tom, for the Bible reading, thank you. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me and have neither remembered me nor taken this to heart? Is not because I have long been silent? Uh, is it not that you, excuse me, is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? I will expose your righteousness and your works and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry. For then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger. Yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants, from this time on and forever, says the Lord. 
Thanks so much, Tom. Uh, let me pray and then we'll get into this great passage. Our Father, we are in such need of transformation. Father, apart from you, apart from what you have done for us in the gospel, we are lost, we are stuck in our sin, but in Christ you have graciously come near to us and you've done everything uh, to make that way back to you. So, Father, I pray now as we listen to your word and as we hear it and reflect on it, that by your spirit you'll work it deeply within each of us now. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, uh, you might remember a movie back in the 90s. Anyone remember this movie? Um, Groundhog Day. Uh, it was a movie uh, where the weatherman, Phil Connors, gets stuck experiencing the same day over and over and over again. Uh, it was so successful that the title of the movie kind of entered the common language. Uh, it entered into everyday language and became a bit of a catchphrase. When you experience something over and over and over again, it's like Groundhog Day. Anyone you familiar with that kind of phrase? Well, we're starting this last section of Isaiah today. Uh, we've been in Isaiah a long time, but the last section is from chapters 56 through to 66. And what you see in this section is a bit like Groundhog Day. Um, Isaiah is written in the 8th century BC. It was written to the people of Judah, the southern tribe of Israel. And the first half of, uh, of Isaiah is this record of Isaiah's message to the people of his day. And it's mainly, you see there, it's mainly a message of judgment. Uh, it has glimpses of hope all the way through, but the big message to Israel is that because of their ongoing rejection of the Lord, judgment is coming. They would be taken into exile. And that's just what happened. Um, uh, the, it happened first to the northern tribes of Israel, but then also about 150 years later to the southern tribe of Judah. And so what happens, and hopefully this is familiar if you've been with us all the way through, what happens in the second half of the book is that Isaiah looks ahead of his own time. He looks ahead and has this message of comfort and hope. And it's, first of all, it's a message written down to these exiles in Babylon. Um, it's a message that God wouldn't leave them there. He would save them. He'd bring them back to their land and and he'd send his servant who would set up God's eternal kingdom, uh, who'd make it possible for God's people to be forgiven by taking the punishment that they deserve on himself. Again, hopefully that's all stuff that's pretty familiar from Isaiah if you've been with us all the way through. So that's the, the second part of Isaiah. But what happens now in this very last bit of the book is that Isaiah looks even further into the future from where he's standing if that makes sense. So from where he said, he looks even further into the future. And now he's writing not to the exiles in Babylon, but to the people who have returned from exile. For he was returned from exile. Uh, and he looks to the time when the people of Judah will be brought back into their land. It all happened just as God said it would. Um, we would have seen that um, on the way through in Isaiah. Uh, remember Isaiah talked about uh, Cyrus, God raising up Cyrus. Well, that's just what happened. Cyrus, the Persian king, conquered Babylon and sent the exiles back home. It's an incredible story. Uh, you can read about it in the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah if you want to sort of follow that up. But you can imagine the feeling of these people, right? These people as they're returning home. Uh, God had promised that he would return them. He would return them and now it's come about 
And maybe, maybe all of these wonderful promises of comfort and forgiveness and restoration that Isaiah's been talking about, maybe they're all coming true. But here's where it's like Groundhog Day. Okay, this, this is where it's like Groundhog You read this section that we're looking at this week, and you would have felt this if you're in a home group and reading through more than what we've read today. But you read this, this, this section, and it's a pretty depressing picture. It's a pretty depressing picture. It's as if these, these people have forgotten all about what God's done for them. And they're just repeating the same patterns over and over and over again, the same sins that sent them into exile in the first place. The people of the Judah might have returned from exile physically, but they're still in exile spiritually. They're far from God. And friends, maybe you felt something like that. Maybe you felt something like that, that you're in a kind of spiritual groundhog day. <laughs> Anyone ever felt that? Uh, that your lust or your anger or your pride just keeps bubbling out of you and, and hurting the people around you and, and you can't seem to muster up the willpower to change it. It just keeps happening again and again. That's the kind of situation Israel's in uh, in this part of Isaiah. And God has some confronting words for them. But he also has some, ultimately, actually some incredibly comforting words for them too. And he has some confronting and also incredibly comforting words for you and me, for us here too. Well, the, the thing about Israel's kind of spiritual groundhog day was it looked very religious. Uh, it actually looked very religious. So in, in chapter 58, the, which we didn't read today, but um, it talks about them going on, in, on fasting. So uh, this kind of sign of religious devotion. Uh, in 58 verse 3, um, God says this, Yet on the day of your fasting, so they're going through all the, the religious motions, they're doing all the stuff on the outside, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers your fasting ends in quarrel and stri quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. So you get the picture, right? They're going through the religious motions, but their hearts are still far from God. And they're also, they're not just, they're also turning to the false idols of the nations around them. They're trying to mix their worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, with the, the false gods of the nations around them, of their culture. And, and you keep reading, and they're forgetting about the deeper things of the law, justice and mercy. Well, friends, what, what we get in this passage that we're sort of reflecting more on today, what we get in this passage is a really deep insight into this problem that plagued Israel. And if we're honest, this problem that plagues us too. At the heart of their spiritual Groundhog Day, <laughs> this, this experience that they're going through, at the heart of it was a kind of self-righteousness, a kind of self-righteousness. They were relying on themselves. Uh, even their idolatry and hypocritical worship was ultimately self-righteous. They thought they could manipulate God or manipulate the, the false gods of the nations, the idols of the nations, uh, through their religion, uh, that they could kind of put God in their debt, so he owed them one. And friends, God knows that there is actually no such thing as rest and peace and security that way. There isn't. So because he loves his people, he has these 
confronting words to say. He wants to expose the futility of this kind of self-righteousness. Verse 11 of chapter 57. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me and have neither remembered me nor taken this to heart? Is it not because I've long been silent that you do not fear me? I will expose your righteousness and your works, and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry them all off. A mere breath will blow them away. See what God says to these people. Your righteousness and your works will not benefit you. That's kind of the essence, the heart of God's difficult word that he has for his people. Uh, It's a hard word, but it's absolutely actually basic to the whole message of the Bible. This, friends, is Christianity 101. Uh, And it's a message that we need to keep hearing today. So, so long as you consider Christianity to be about a kind of something that gives you a bit of help to be a good person, about a bit of moral improvement on the side where you build up some credit with God, you haven't understood Christianity at all, if that's your view of it. Uh, Jesus won't be your saviour and your king. Uh, he'll, he'll be at best a kind of weekend hobby for you. Another resource to help you along with your life project. Or maybe you'll actually end up flipping to the other end of the spectrum, like I think many in our society. If if Christianity really is about self-righteousness, perhaps you'll end up flipping to the other end and and adopt an alternative, opposing version of self-righteousness. Let me explain what I mean. I, I think today the vocal opponents of the Christian worldview... They, they don't oppose it because they have no moral vision. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Uh, they believe they are on the side of righteousness and they're exposing and cancelling any vision that doesn't line up with that. And especially, of course, today in the area of sex and gender, this is um, sort of a real pinch point. Well, friends, uh, there's lots to say about that and I hope to um, uh, think together as a church more about those issues later on this year. But... Christianity is not one version of self-righteousness over and against other alternative versions of self-righteousness. Christianity is the declaration that no one is righteous, not even one, that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, that each of us has turned to our own way. So it's not just one version of self-righteousness over and against another. Christianity is admitting that this is true about yourself and about every other person, about the whole world, that no one is righteous, not even one, that we all like sheep have gone astray and turned to our own way. And we need to do that. We need to do that because our self-righteous idolatry doesn't actually give us what it promises. It doesn't give peace. It doesn't give security. Uh, and that's how this chapter ends. Uh, it kind of it names our self-righteousness for what it really is, wickedness, a foolish pride towards God who alone lives in a high and holy place. 
And it shows the, us the kind of restless dead end that that way of living actually is. Uh, flick down to verse 20 of chapter 57. But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mud and mire. What an image, right? You used to get that picture in your mind, the tossing sea cannot rest, the waves are casting up all this mud and mire. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. If you are relying on your works and your righteousness, then you'll never have rest You'll be like the tossing sea. You'll always be going through a spiritual groundhog day. You'll never know this peace that's spoken of here. Your righteousness and your works will not benefit you. And friends, being a Christian starts with admitting that. Starts with admitting that. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. If it was just that, if that was all that being a Christian was about, it would lead to despair, right? It would lead to despair. But thank God uh, it it doesn't end there. It's not just that. You know, I I kind of felt actually a little awkward in the lead up to this week, knowing that I'm speaking about this passage and these kind of quite heavy things. On the same week, we're enjoying curry and crazy hats for lunch. (laughs) Uh, And if, if this was where we stopped, if this is where we stopped... Well, I think it would kind of be, it wouldn't fit, right? It wouldn't fit. But as we saw last week, the end of all this, the end of all this really is a joy-filled feast for the people of God. Uh, an eternal feast that we're actually, we're right to enjoy a foretaste of here and now with our own joy-filled feasts. Absolutely, because these chapters of Isaiah, they don't just hold out the kind of restlessness and futility of self-righteousness. They, they hold out the beautiful and transforming peace of the one who alone is righteous, the only righteous God. So Christianity means admitting the emptiness of your righteousness and your works, but not staying there turning from there in humility and dependence to the one place, the one person where there is true and lasting hope and healing and peace. That turn, that's what the Bible calls repentance. That turn, turning from your proud self-reliance and sin and turning to God in broken dependence and obedient trust. That turn means that instead of self-righteousness, well, you can have the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the wonderful freedom of self-forgetfulness, as your vision is taken up with Christ and all that he has done for you. Instead of the restlessness of never knowing whether you're good enough, you can have the peace of being fully accepted through Jesus, the suffering servant who died in your place to bring you to God. You can have the eternal justification uh, that, you don't, that, that you don't have to sort of anxiously earn, um, but you just receive as a free gift. Instead of fear, you can have God's festal joy. Instead of Groundhog Day, God holds out gospel transformation so that's what we're going to think about for the rest of the time this fresh start each day 
with the God who loves you and who calls you into his kingdom. Uh, 57 verse 13. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. That's kind of an Old Testament way of, of saying all of God's blessing and promises will be theirs. No good thing's going to be held back from them. Verse 14, and it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way for my people. Uh, God doesn't want anything to get in the way between you and him. 15, for this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrites. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger. Yet they kept on in their willful ways. That's their groundhog day. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. So God, through Isaiah, he speaks to these returned exiles about a coming day when he would lead them not just out of physical exile, but out of their spiritual exile, when he would do in them and for them what they could never do in and for themselves. And he would revive them from the inside out he would heal them and create praise on their lips. And when is this going to happen? When will this happen? Well, Isaiah tells us right at the end of the collection of chapters that our home groups looked at this week, um, right at the end of chapter 59. So that's where we're going to just quickly turn to now, 59 verse 20. When is this, this incredible transformation all going to happen? What does he say? The Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you. And my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. So you get the picture God himself, the Redeemer, God would come to those who repent of their sins to redeem them, to make his new covenant with them, to put his spirit on them and his words on their lips. And if all of that sounds familiar, well, that's because that's exactly what God has done in Jesus, isn't it? Uh, Jesus brought about this new covenant in his blood at the cross. Jesus says, what does he say? It's the poor in spirit, not the proud in spirit. It's the poor in spirit who are blessed. Uh, Jesus pours out his own spirit on those who repent of their sins, who come to him not in their own righteousness, but resting in his righteousness alone. 
in Jesus and by his spirit, the one who, the, the one who lives in a high and holy place also lives, also lives, how wonderful, <laughs> also lives with the contrite and the lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. The Redeemer has come and his kingdom is here. And yet we know from the kind of perspective of the New Testament, right, uh, that the Redeemer will come again and he will bring his kingdom in fully and finally and completely for the whole world on that day. And so we kind of live in between these two comings of this Redeemer. We wait between Jesus' first and second comings as God's... And in that time, as we kind of wait, God is transforming his people by his spirit through his word in the family of his church. So, you see, God does actually have a righteousness for you to live in more and more. A way of living that lines up with his good purposes, his good design. But it's not a self-righteousness, right? It's never a self-righteousness that kind of leads to either pride if you get it right or despair when you fail. That's not, that's not what's going on. Um, I tried to put this in a bit of a diagram. Uh, our righteousness, I reckon, usually looks like this. Um, if this is the kind of overlap between Jesus' first and second coming... Actually, maybe those high points are a bit too high for, for me. Yeah. yeah, you probably resonate with that, right? Like this, our righteousness usually, you know, maybe we have, uh, we have all these ups and downs and we feel um, terrible and far from God when we're on the low and great and, high and close to God when we're on a high. If you base your peace and your assurance on where you are on that line, well, you probably will either be either proud or in despair, Right? Um, but here's what the gospel says. Let's go to the next slide. The gospel says that if you are in Christ, you are actually already righteous. You're 10 out of 10 with God all the time because of Jesus, not because of yourself, because of Jesus who gives you his, his righteousness as a wonderful free gift so that's true about you. Both of those things are true about you at the same time. That's, that's who you really are. And our own growth in righteousness, as unsteady and wobbly and slow as it is, is always grounded in and flowing out of the gift of Jesus' perfect righteousness that is given to us freely by his grace. Friends, that is gospel transformation. Complete security. Not having to perform in order to be accepted. But because you are already accepted fully and totally through Christ, out of that, living in a thankful and obedient response as by the Spirit you put to death sin in your life and live more and more for God and his glory. And friends, I think what these chapters in Isaiah do for us, what they really bring home for us, is that the key posture, for the, if you go back to that slide, the key posture for us in that kind of process of gospel transformation, wherever we are, 
the key posture for us uh, that never actually changes uh, is humility. Humility, brokenness, being poor in spirit. That's, that's the only way in and it's the only way on. Gospel transformation is a lifelong thing and it's going to involve lots and lots of factors, right? It's complex. I don't want to present a kind of simplistic uh, thing here. God is changing you slowly, bit by bit. It involves lots of things, soaking yourself in God's word, in the community of God's church as we spur one another on, in the community of a local church family that you give yourself to and belong to. Uh, it often involves suffering, as suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. But friends, what we learn here in Isaiah is absolutely fundamental. The starting place, both the starting place and kind of the ongoing fuel for experiencing God's transformation is first of all to admit that you need it. To admit that you need it and that you are helpless in yourself to achieve it. You're helpless in yourself. You can't do it on your own, in your own strength. That apart from Jesus, you are actually with the rest of rebellious humanity on a restless sea, without peace. But to those who repent of their sins, to those who have been brought low by them, who acknowledge them openly and without self-justification, and who from there take refuge in God alone, the one who lives in a high and holy place, that one will also live miraculously, wonderfully, will also live in you by his spirit and will revive you and give you his peace. He will bring about in you what you cannot bring about in yourself, all to his own glory and our eternal good. Can I pray? Lord, we all know the restless sea of self-righteousness. Forgive our rebellious hearts that seek to find life and peace and meaning apart from you. Lord, humble us under your mighty hand that in due season you might lift us up. You tell us that you oppose the proud, but that you give grace to the humble. So, Father, we pray that you might give us your grace, that as you, by your Spirit, continue to change us. Lord, I pray for, for any who have not yet received your forgiveness through the death of the servant in their place. Lord, humble them today. May they come to you in dependence and a contrite heart and receive your reviving work in their life. May all of us, so I pray for those of us who have begun that journey, but please keep us, our Father, from basing our feeling of assurance or peace on our own performance. May we know what it means to, to, to live out of the complete 
acceptance and righteousness that is ours as a gift. And Lord, in the security of that, by your spirit, please keep changing us day by day. Please enable us to put to death uh, those, things which, those things which keep us on that restless sea so that we might live to righteousness and we might look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, uh, where there will be no more sea, but that your glory will be all in all. And we pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.